0: Herman. I'm the director here. I'd like to make a special welcome to Jan Bach Meyer and her group uh, both here on campus and, and further afield. And Jan will come up in a second and just uh, tell her ITV group whatever they need to hear. Uh, I'm going to introduce Walter Enders. We are combining two groups here today, a group that's interested very much in time series methods and a group interested in national security questions uh, as they pertain uh, to the United States and the world more generally. And we're very pleased to welcome Walter Enders uh, here to be with us today as part of our series on national security and political economy. Dr. Enders has a PhD from Columbia University. Uh, he is currently, along with Todd Chandler, the holder of the National Academy of Sciences Estes Award for Behavioral Research Relevant to the Prevention of Nuclear War. He's uh, published many uh, articles in the area of time series models, economics, and finance. He's published in the Review of Economics Statistics, the Quarterly Journal of Economics, the Journal of International Economics, the American Economic Review, and I can read on and on, but I don't think it's it's necessary. Today, he's providing a a discussion of a paper already circulated, I know all of you have it, called After 9-11, Is It All Different Now? So I guess without further ado, I'll turn over the podium to Walter. Uh, Jan, do you want to say something briefly, and then you turn the podium over to Walter.
1: Um, I'll just say greetings to make sure Wisconsin, Illinois, and Minnesota is all ready to go. Um, I know it is a big treat for all of my colleagues at all three institutions to be able to join us when you have the author of our textbook right here um, to be able to present. We didn't want to leave anybody out, and I know that testing beforehand showed that um, everyone seem to be ready at all sites. I see John Peavy House up right now. It looks like things are a go. Okay, thanks. Welcome.
2: Great University and I just appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. By the way, I hope to get a copy of that introduction because when I get my next paper rejected I think I'd like to have the opportunity to bring it back and think, yeah, I'm not so bad at it. <laughs> uh, What I'm going to speak about today is a paper that Todd Saylor and I have been working on about 9-11. Uh, problems, of course, are that we want to know is everything really different now? Was 9-11 a fundamental change or was 9-11 part of an ongoing process? There's not a lot of data. There's not a lot of post-sample data for us. 9-11 hasn't happened all that long ago. And so, of course, there's going to be problems in doing with what we're exactly trying to do, look to see if there are structural breaks in the data set. Nevertheless... Let me talk about the kinds of things we're doing, and then I'm going to focus in on the paper. Let's see if this works. The direct effects of 9-11, I think, are fairly obvious to people. The direct effects are that there are almost 3,000 people killed in 9-11. The number of people killed was as great as all the deaths in transnational terrorism in the previous 12 years or 13 years. did show that terrorists didn't need weapons of mass destruction to cause a tremendous amount of damage to the United States. After all, the technology they used was a very simple box cutter plus skyjacking technology, the same kind of technologies that were used in the 1960s to hijack airplanes. Expenditures on homeland security did increase so that there were... Um. Direct costs from 9 11, and I don't know how you count the war in Iraq if that's part of the cost of 9 11 or not. Nevertheless, the direct costs are substantial. But we're trying to get to see some of the other effects of 9 11, particularly the effects on how terrorists behave towards us. When I define terrorism, or when Todd defines terrorism, we use pretty much the State Department's definition of terrorism. And you could read as well as I can. I don't know if the other folks can see this, but you could read as well as I can. So I'm not going to read the whole thing out. I'm just going to highlight the key parts. Terrorism is the premeditated use of force by subnational groups to obtain a political objective. And the key ingredients of that definition are that there has to be an underlying political motive. This morning, somebody mentioned what about the shooter... Uh, in the Columbus area, while that was a terrible thing, we don't believe that's terrorism because there was no political motive. In the same way, Columbine was a horrible event. Nevertheless, there were no direct political motives. For it to be terrorism, there has to be a uh, political motive. After all, if I walk into a 7-Eleven and I say, give me all your money, that's just simply a crime. Right? What separates terrorism from simple crime? is some aspect of a political movement. Typically, it's caused by a subnational group. Uh, we don't look at events caused by guerrilla groups or armies or anything else like that because those things are acts of war, and we're looking at terrorism. Attacks against occupying forces are included so that what's happening right now in Iraq is not part of Terrorism, even though, again, those are terrible events. And in the talk today, I'm not going to talk about state terrorism, although that's an important event. I was at a conference at Wharton at the end of January, and there were a whole bunch of people from the insurance industry there, and they're fundamentally concerned about the definition of terrorism. And when I talk to economists, ah, it's not so important what terrorism is. But you talk to the people in the insurance industry, and it's it's very important because they're forced by law to write insurance policies on terrorism. They're writing policies on something that's not very well defined at the current moment in time. And so I gave you a... Uh, list of some of the things that terrorism is not. And here's what they were particularly interested in, the Terrorism, Risk, and Insurance Act. Uh, Under that act, it was supposed to be a private-public partnership that came about as a result of 9-11, but insurance providers must provide insurance coverage against terrorism. Not everybody has to buy it, so as economists we know what happens. Here's an insurance company that is forced to offer a terrorism policy. Not everyone has to buy it. And so they're very concerned about this law, particularly because under the uh, Terrorism and Insurance Risk Act, it's the Secretary of the Treasury that certifies whether an act is terrorism or not. And the State Department, I'm sorry, the Treasury Department only is concerned with transnational terrorist acts. And transnational acts are the kinds of acts that we look at in the data set that we use. We look at transnational terrorism because uh, transnational terrorism has important implications for the United States. But first let me talk about what transnational terrorism is. When an act has any ramifications that transcend a national... Boundary. It's an instance of transnational terrorist. Now, the incident could be transnational if the victim or the perpetrator are of different nationalities. So, if an attack occurs in country X and the resident of Y is a victim, it's transnational. It doesn't have to be some foreign group attacking us here at home. All it has to be is different nationalities involved. So if an American in Pakistan is kidnapped, transnational. The bombing of the Madrid train station, transnational, but not Oklahoma City, that's not transnational. We like to stick with transnational because it allows us to preclude looking at wars. It allows us to, we don't have to then look at various types of domestic terrorism because we're not even sure what domestic terrorism is. My, some of my relatives are visiting me down in uh, this house I have in Florida, and we got into a big argument, and they're saying, no, everything is terrorism, and I'm saying, so you're going to lump together all domestic events, I don't even know what that is. For example, do you want to put Rwanda, events in Rwanda in, when you do a study of terrorism? Do you want to look at the events when you break up the former Yugos- Yugoslav Republic? Those are terrible events, but those incidents are domestic terrorism. Do you want to put in acts against minority groups in this country? The shooting of Martin Luther King certainly was a political event as opposed... It was a domestic event. Do you want to put in all hate crimes? Once you start... Once once you don't carefully define your boundaries, it's not at all clear what you're working with. And so, like it or not, what we use is this very narrow notion of terrorism, transnational terrorism. And by the way, it's the same one that the Secretary of the U.S. Treasury Department is using. There's been a rise in transnational terrorism with globalization and with the events in the Middle East. Let me show you what the data set that we have looks like. The data set it comes from Iterate, and what we get are these raw numbers that's put together by Uh, someone named Miklas, and several different co-authors. But here's an example. On November 4th of 1985, in Belgium, a bomb went off in a bank. A loudspeaker credited some communist combatant cell. That's not transnational. There's nothing transnational there. However, the next day, I'm sorry, at another time in the day, a bomb went off in manufacturers Hanover Trust, Damage was extensive, there were no injuries, that's transnational, because that was a U.S. bank located in Belgium. In Greece, there was a bomb that uh, was outside the offices of TWA Airlines. The bomb went off, nothing happened. In the Soviet Union on the same day, a Mexican diplomat and a servant were found murdered in their apartment. In Peru, a booby trap bomb same day went off at U.S. Citibank. In South Korea, some students uh, had incendiary devices against the American embassy, and so on and so on. And I like this page because what it says is two things. One, there's a lot of transnational terrorism that goes on every single day. Every single day. There's lots of events. We just hear about events like 9-11 or the bombings of our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, but there's lots of transnational terrorist events all the time. Moreover, we have to make judgments. Is the assassination, I'm sorry, I said assassination, is the fact that the Mexican diplomat and his servant were found murdered, is that a terrorist event or not?
3: But,
2: But I don't know. He was a diplomat. It could have been someone broke into the person's house and just killed them while looking for money. If it was an assassination, it's terrorist. If it's just a burglary and a murder, it's not terrorist. We have to make these kinds of judgments. So the is not perfect. Certainly not perfect, but we try to limit the damage by looking at transnational events. As soon as we start to look at domestic events, and I talk about domestic events a lot, because whenever I do these talks, people say, well, you're precluding this, you're precluding that, and the other thing, but there's a there's a good reason why we do. And November 5th, I'm sorry, November 6th, a major was uh, gunned down in Puerto Rico. Some people pulled up with a motorcycle, etc. So what we know What we know from the raw data is when an event occurred, we know typically where it occurred. We know if there are any casualties or fatalities. We know the type of event it is. And what we then do is we code each of these events into 40 different variables. And so we have a reasonably rich data set. What we don't have is what group it is. We don't know what group it is. Who is responsible, by the way, for the trade attacks in Madrid? One group, two groups? We don't know. Right? Who is responsible for the assassin? I said assassination, because I think it was a political event. Who is, res- who is responsible for the murder of the diplomat in Mexico? We don't know. Sometimes, most of the time, terrorists don't leave calling cards telling us, who they are. Most of the time, no one claims responsibility. Sometimes it's a free rider problem where many different groups claim responsibility. And so we, you can't, as a practical matter, you can't go ahead and do this by group. It just can't work. Because we don't know. Some of the characteristics of the incidents, to keep time short, I'll fast forward a little bit but there's typically been one what people who do research in the area call spectacular incident every year. Uh, Bombings are the most popular mode of terrorism, and while it's popular to attribute increased casualties to better technology, almost every one of the incidents in our data set that I'll show you in a minute is an old technology type of incident. There's only a, there's only one sarin nerve gas attack. There's only a few anthrax attacks, but the big terrorist events are what? Bombing. Bombings old technology, not plastic explosives, not anything highly sophisticated, big bombs put in deadly places are the typical terrorist event. 9-11, as I said earlier, is also an old technology event. D.B. Cooper, just a little more sophisticated. But a very, very logistically complicated event done with old technology. So here's here's the summary of the data running from 86 to 2000, end of 2002. We have about 13,000 incidents of the 13,000, you can see that 4,000 were explosive bombings. And there are other kinds of bombings as well, uh, letter and parcel bombings. But overall, the biggest, the biggest, most of the time fluctuating around 50% of incidents are bombings of one type or another. Assassinations, hostages, and kidnappings are another second biggest source of terrorist events. And here's the time series. The figures on this are slightly newer than the figures on the paper I sent, because we now have data that runs to the end of 2003, and this is data that runs to the end of 2003. In the paper, I think we used the um, middle of 2003. We used the first two quarters of 2003, and so if you look at all incidents, you can see clearly that through the 80s, the number of incidents averaged over 100, over 100 transnational incidents per quarter, and you can see that roughly 50% of those incidents were bombings. Large spikes in the data, bombing. Why? Bombings a logistically simple incidents. It's easy to do a bombing, much more complicated to have a campaign of skyjackings or much, many more logistically complicated events, so the big spikes tend to be uh, bombings. And what I wanted to show you was that all incidents and bombings started to go up about three quarters before 9-11. Hostage takings, hostage takings, you can see what's happened. Hostage takings have fallen off from numbers that have fluctuated in the uh, range of ten or so per quarter for a relatively long period of time. And then, again, three or four or five quarters before 9-11, hostage takings plummeted. Incidents with deaths and casualties. Incidents with deaths and casualties fluctuate. They started out from a low in 1968, (coughs) increased fairly steadily, Uh, fell, rose again, and they had a decidedly downward movement from the uh, 1990s on till about three quarters before 9-11 proportion of bombings is a little bit different. The proportions of bombings had a steady decline and then seemed to turn upwards around 1998 or 1999. So those are, those are the types of incident series that we're able to put together from this data set. So what we're able to do is say, well we know this is a bombing. We know this is an assassination. We know this is a hostage taking, and from that raw data, then we extract these time series of terrorist events. Now, it's going to be important in what I talk about later on when I tell you about some of the results from the. To note that from the late 60s until the late 1980s, most transnational terrorism had to do with. Idiosyncratic groups, with Marxist groups, with groups that were fighting for some nationalist cause. In the 1990s, we saw a switch towards far more religious-based terrorists, and there's a few reasons for that. But these religious terrorists have increased in number. These amorphous or idiosyncratic, like millennium groups, have increased in number. And the left-based groups have decreased. And so we see a different kind of terrorist that today than we saw in the 1970s and 1980s. When I say terrorist, you know I mean transnational. The demise of the leftist groups is, is due to, well, obviously the reduced interest in Marxism and the sponsorship of Marxism. ideologies with the decline of the Soviet Union. But domestic efforts in countries like France and Germany, um, they worked very hard to break up groups like the Red Brigades and so forth, and so they smashed those groups and they saw a decline in uh, transnational terrorism. And with the Reduction in state sponsorship, we've also seen less of the politically uh, leftist-motivated terrorism. But since the takeover of our embassy in Iran in 1979, we've seen a rise in this religious-based terrorism to the point now in the 1990s, most terrorists, most terrorism is this religious-based terrorism. Uh, just in our data set at the start of since 1980 where we had two religious-based groups we grew to 564 uh, 64 religious-based groups. What Todd and I have always tried to do is work with the notion of terrorists being rational actors. And I still think to poli-sci people, I think to economists, the notion makes some sense, but I do remember the time when we got the Washington Post, and you know they have these sort of weird science columns where, you know, people do these, some academic does these crazy things, where well, there were these two academics at Iowa State who actually argued that terrorists were rational. So we were the weird science of the <laughs> that week. Uh, Now, I think most people who do any serious work on the area think, of course, it only makes sense to apply rational actor models to terrorists because while they may not be rational in the sense that they have my preferences, they're rational in the sense that they use their scarce resources in ways that they believe bring about the most desired outcomes. And moreover, I don't know how to predict irrational behavior. I, I guess I could predict completely irrational behavior, but if, if you assume that services are irrational from the onset, it's very hard to talk about what policy X or policy Y is able to do. And so we think that the rational actor model uh, makes a lot of sense, and the kind of things that we've done in the past is to think about a household production function, so that household The household production function approach applied to terrorism would say, as Lancaster originally said, people have these choices, these group choices to make. Terrorists have to decide between legal and illegal means of allocating their resources. If the resources allocated to the illegal channel, well, then they have to decide what's the best attack mode to take place And those kind of decisions are based on simple costs and benefits. So, and we've seen groups like Sinn Fein, for example, um, become very, a very lethal group to a group that many people now think has acted quite responsibly in recent years. We've seen the, uh, we've seen a number of the Palestinian groups become more or less, oriented in the direction of terrorism based on various events that have happened inside Israel and various events that have happened in relationship to the peace process. Uh, once they make that choice, they actually have to then decide what kinds of attacks to take, whether they are to hijack our airplanes, whether they're going to uh, use bombings, etc. And those decisions are based on their resources, the relative prices of the various attacks, the expected costs and benefits, and the group's attitudes towards risk, the group's own preferences. And with religious-based terrorism, what we would surmise, and what we do actually see in the data, is that individuals who don't care about their own well-being are very willing to undertake more deadly events. And that's what we do Seeing the data, that even though the number of incidents is down substantially, the proportion of deadly inc- incidents is up really quite substantially. Most incidents in the data set that we have are now deadly incidents or incidents with cash. So, if terrorists are rational, government policies can affect the resource base and affect relative prices. Uh, terrorists will substitute away, and we've measured in the past that they do substitute away from relatively expensive attacks into relatively inexpensive attacks. For example, when the United States installed metal detectors in airports in 1973, what we saw was about 10 fewer skyjackings per quarter as a result of the metal detector technology. But what we also saw was almost exactly 10 more hijack... I'm sorry, 10 more hostage-taking and kidnapping. So we saw an almost one-to-one substitution out of the relatively high-priced skyjackings because of metal detectors (laughs) into the now relatively lower-priced kidnapping and hostage-taking. So what, what we saw is... Not just the substitution, but a substitution into the most logistically similar type of incident. A a hostage-taking and a skyjacking are both logistically very complex incident types. What we also were able to measure, though, is not only was it this one-to-one substitution, the number of deaths actually went up as a result of the uh, metal detector technology, because if you skyjacked an airplane up until 9-11, if you were on a hijacked airplane, it was a relatively safe incident. You were going to have one heck of a story to tell when you were released. (laughs) That's true. And the people on the fourth plane, of course, realized that it was a new game. But... Up with what happened back in 1973 when we installed metal detectors hijackings are to get you on TV kidnappings don't necessarily unless you kill one of the hostages right? and so and that's what we saw that's why we saw this increase in the number of deaths with the uh, introduction of the metal detector technology so uh, we saw this. Very different type of substitution. Anyway, so what Todd and I did in this particular paper that I sent is to try to see whether 9/11 was a singular event. And what we mean by a singular event, an event that caused an important structural break in the, data, in, the in these data series. So we looked at all all incidents, hostage takings, assassinations. Bombings, bomb sub-K, is bombings with deaths. Bomb sub-K is bombing with casualties. So that if there was a wounded, excuse me, if there was someone wounded or killed, that's a bombing with a casualty. The number of incidents with deaths, the number of incidents with casualties. And we wanted to see, is there a structural break in that series, and in, in those series, at the time of 9-11? And so what we did is we used two kinds of intervention variables. One kind of intervention variable causes a level shift. Is there a a shift in the level of the series? Alternatively, we used the pulse as the intervention. Was 9-11 just a one-time pulse that had an effect on the series, and then the series goes back to its original level? And so we estimated each of these processes as a dynamic process. Uh, Some of the people here will know what I mean when I say we estimated it as an AR process. We did lag-length tests. We did unit-root tests, and we tried to see whether everything was stationary in order to do the statistical testing appropriately. Uh, And so the lag lengths and the Dickey-Fuller values are reported there. And let me just say, everything works well for us without going into the detail. And then what we did is we introduced these two dummy variables. One that would change the mean of the series and the other that would just pulse the series and shot the series and see if it came back to its original level. And the statistics say for the all series, the alpha one and alpha two coefficients are not statistically significant. For the hostage taking series, it's the only one that's significant, and I left out the t value of about 0.25. But the the pulse isn't the pulse isn't significant, but the uh, level shift is, and so we see a decline of about six incidents, but all the other, none, none of the other series show any significant defense as a result of 9-11. So that, was 9-11 a singular event? Well, if it was, it was only for the hostage-taking series. We also try to look at proportions. So we looked at the proportion of hostages in all, the proportion of assassinations, bombings, proportion of deaths due to bombings, proportion of casualties due to bombing, proportion of deaths, proportion of casualties. If you go through, the only thing that's changed is the proportion of hostage takings, and that that coefficient alpha-2 at the very top indicates that the proportion of hostage takings decreased by 8 percentage points on impact and then converged to a new long-run level. And now the proportion of deaths due to bombing has increased by that 25 percentage points. So that what we see is fewer, fewer hostage-takings, more deadly bombs. Now, I was, and, I'm sorry. And then, we've also seen uh, changes in uh, deaths and casualties. But those are just temporary. Those are temporary. Now, if I were to look at these results, I would say, not very convinced. Because there are other structural breaks that one would want to take into account. So this just says, is 9-11 the only important structural break in the data? But maybe there are some others. Maybe the rise in religious fundamentalism coinciding with the decline in leftist group-based terrorism is also a structural break that we want to take into account. Maybe uh, changes in the Soviet Union and the breakup of the Soviet Union Maybe we want to take that break into account. So, if I were to stand up here and say to you, and we took every structural break possible into account, I know the people who do time series would say, you're just data mining, you're just overfitting the data, that's ridiculous, you can't do a kind of metrics that way. And I agree with that. Okay? I agree with that. So what we try to do is search for a way to allow us to pick structural breaks without us imposing our preferences or our a priori notions on the data. And this is just a slide I put together. It's not exactly in the paper, but as I say that there are lots of different breaks that you can take into account. And one strategy would to use lots of different dummy variables, and this is a little catalog of some of the problems. There's a danger of ex post fitting. If you look at the data, if you look at the data and then you say, ah, there's a big break there, I'm going to put a dummy variable in, that doesn't work. That's not the econometric method. A number of events may coincide with the selected break point. The the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan coincided with a whole host of other types of uh, changes that we might be concerned about. You can't use asymptotic theory if you have multiple dummy variables. Look, I've had a dummy variable here at observation 80, and here a dummy variable at observation 90. As As I increase the sample size, what happens to the number of observations at Observation 80 and Observation 90. I mean, there's only 10 data points between those, even if I have a billion extra observations, right? So that asymptotic theory doesn't work when you have lots and lots of dummy variables that you've just thrown in. And just as I may not know what to include, I have the same set of problems knowing what to exclude. So what we did is looked around the literature and to say, well, what we want is a test for unknown break dates. So let's let the data determine the break dates. and let's not let us determine the break days. Let's let the data. And there's a there's a test by Andrew and Floberger, Andrew Lee and Floberger, that allows you to test for a single structural break at an unknown break point, and it's a very well-known paper, and that's why I have it up here. Essentially, what you do is the following. You let every single point, every single observation, be your potential break point. You run a regression. You run a regression for every single possible break. The most, the best-fitting regression is the most likely break. And then he develops a statistical test that takes into account the fact that you did this search over um, all the possible break points that there were. Well, that doesn't work for us. That doesn't work for us because I don't know how many breaks there are. Maybe there's one break, but maybe there's two or three or four breaks. I don't know. And so what we did is we took an agnostic approach and we look for a test that, and it's the Viperon procedure that does it. They have, they develop a test, and they have a number of papers in Econometrica, Journal of Applied Econometrics. You could go to their website and download their software to do this thing. RATS has a version of it. That what it does is you could test the null hypothesis of no breaks against some unspecified number of breaks. And you could test the null hypothesis of m breaks against an alternative of m plus one breaks. In other words, I could test is there some break against no, is there no break against some breaks? Is there three breaks against four breaks, for example? The procedure allows for some or all of the coefficients to be affected by the break. And what we do since we have so few data points we only allow the intercept term of our time series mile to be affected by the break, not the, the slope coefficient. That saves us a lot of parameters that need to be estimated. Uh, so, in any event, what the researcher has to do is just specify the maximum number of breaks. The procedure just does a generalized version of that Andrews-Flauberger test that I talked about, estimates every possible set of breaks, picks, gets the sum of square residuals, and there are ways to test, and here's what we found. Ah, by the way, I didn't also say Not only does it pick the number of breaks and gives you the break date, it gives you confidence intervals around the break date. So not only could I say a break occurred in 19... I don't know, 82, I'm not looking in that direction. Not only did a break occur in 1982, first quarter, but a 95% confidence interval around the breaks puts them, you know, from 1981 to 1980, whatever it may be. And so that's what we did. So if you look at the All Series, the break date is 1994 when religious terrorism has become very important. The 95% confidence interval had nothing to do with 9 11. Hostage takings, well, hostage takings did, the point estimate was a year before 9 11, but the 95% confidence interval does span 9 11. It does span 9 11. So I could say, even though hostage takings fell, even though hostage takings fell, and they fell before 9-11, it's possible that 9-11 started. But when I actually showed you the slide for uh, hostage takings, I think I was careful to point out that hostage takings actually started to fall dramatically about a year before 9-11. So maybe that, that year before wasn't statistically significant, but. <coughs> The (laughs) point estimate certainly is well before. Bombings, religious... Bombings and all are about the same. Bombings with casualties. Well, there it finds two break points. None of them involve 9-11. Deaths, it finds two breaks. None of them involve 9-11. The proportions do matter. The proportions of hostage takings almost to the day that picks out the proportion of hostage taking being coincided with 9/11. Not assassinations, not bombings. Bombings with deaths possibly involves 9/11. There's a very tight confidence interval. So bombings with deaths uh, involve 9/11, and the proportion of death incidents maybe yes, maybe no. So what's happened? So what do we get to say? having done this exercise. We think that 9-11, in terms of the way terrorists behave, didn't have important effects on these years. If anything, there was a process already in place, it seems to us. If you really want to be technical about it, Well, maybe a 95% confidence interval puts 9-11 in there, but there was something going on where there were fewer hostage takings and more deadly bombings, and that process started before 9-11. And just to try to cement it, what we tried to do is then do multi-step-ahead forecasting, taking breaks into account or not taking breaks into account. So, for example... If I look at hostage, here's the ho- you can see the whole hostage-taking series. Let's say that what I try to do is forecast, ho- forecast hostage-taking, say, eight steps ahead here. Well, I'm going to miss an important breakpoint. Isn't that right? I'm going miss to miss an important breakpoint. If I do one step ahead forecasts, well, I miss my breakpoint only one time. If I include these dummy variables in. So, what we tried to see is, well, what's, what's, how can we compare the multi step ahead and the one step ahead forecast? And you could see that the multi step ahead forecasts start to go really badly about a year before 9 11. So, again, we're just trying to put icing on the cake that this isn't a 9 11 phenomenon, this is something that started before 9 11. If we do the same thing with death incidents, one step ahead, eight step ahead forecast, by and large, the same forecast errors around 9-11. So 9-11 doesn't constitute any kind of a break, it seems to us, in terms of death incidents, but it does in the proportion of hostage-taking incidents. And so, uh, with that said, I believe I've spoken 45 minutes, but I think I've got 20 more slides that I can talk about, and I'd be happy to answer your questions.
4: very few individuals who are looking at how transnational terrorist organizations have change their methods. That said, something seemed to be missing from your data sets, and that's uh, first, you're dealing with means, bombings, kidnappings, but what about the ends? What about uh, the fact that we know that uh, Al-Qaeda, for example, is starting to target economic targets? You go after economic targets, uh, specifically have a desire to have an economic impact. I didn't see that in the paper. There's also the the psychological impact, which I don't, I think you can have an attack that has low casualties but an enormous psychological impact, or likewise you could have a a larger attack, Madrid, for example, where it's not clear where the psychological impact will be outside of of Spain. uh, One further point, kind of a question. What about attempted terrorist activities? I was thinking in terms of the number of kidnappings and bombings that are averted. While those would indicate the intent of the terrorists to continue along a similar path, your data only seems to account for successful operations. And you might find a discrepancy there.
2: Can
1: you repeat the question? Since you have the only mic, I suspect people can't hear it very well. You
3: can shorten it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Let me try. <laughs> I can stand over there, you can come up here. <laughs> I think a simple way to paraphrase the question with there are different types. there are different types of incidents. not all bombings are bombing. Right, what about fail bombings? What about fail bombing versus successful bombing? That's one part of the question. The first part I'll come back to. What we try to do is And we've always tried to break up incidents by type because we think that it's important to do that. And in some of our earlier papers, we looked at threats and hoaxes. Not because threats and hoaxes are low-resource-using events, but because threats and hoaxes are important events. If someone's got a gun to me and say, I'm going to kill you if, and it turns out there's no bullets in it, it's still a frightening event. But we can't do all of that. We just don't have the ability to do all of that. What we try <coughs> to do is look at bombings versus bombings with death. Okay, so it's trying to get some notion at the intensity of the bomb. A, a bomb that just didn't go off and didn't hurt anybody is still in with bombing. It's still an incident. But by looking at those subcategories of bombings, bombings with casualties, and bombings with deaths, we're trying to do some of that. Failed assassination is still an assassination. Now, hostage taking is a hostage taking. So, so we don't have in our... In the data I showed you, it wasn't just successful hostage taking. I'm not even sure sometimes what a successful hostage taking Maybe the successful hostage taking of, say, Pearl was just to show his horrible pictures on television. Maybe that was, I don't know what some of those goals are. But that's why we try to do things by incident height, to try to fine-tune it as, as well as we can. What we don't do is use the number of deaths or the number of casualties. Because then what you see is uh, certain incidents have huge numbers of deaths or casualties, and by and large, they're the same type of incident in terms of the production technology as some other incidents. And so while we've tried to do that in the past, the data is just astronomically noisy. And that's not a I guess. My is you just can't do too much because you have so many radical spikes up in here. And the first part of your question was,
4: with, with regards um, well, if you take a look at some of the terrorist organizations targeting at economic targets, how do
2: you account for that? Or the psychological impact? A well, psychological impact, I don't know how to do that. I mean, there is work and Todd and I have done some trying to look at the costs of terrorism. We, we have done some work on looking at how tourism, for example, responds to terrorism after all terrorist groups like ETA in Spain, ADA would target tourist hotels directly and try to measure how much tourism is diverted by things like that. Now we've done some on foreign direct investment. And in fact there are a number of papers that are looking on how FBI is affected by terrorism and how economic growth is affected by terrorism. But it's really hard to do. It's it's really very hard to do. Uh, I, could, I could think about how I would ask myself, how has 9-11 affected the United States? What's the effect on the stock market? What's the effect on our growth? Did it cause Did it cause us to have more sluggish growth than we otherwise would? But to take all of these incidents and do it for lots of different countries, I think it's neither one of these.
3: I, I, think I'm to
4: make, I think that it is important that some terrorist organizations may have realized after 9-11, let's look at that as a structural break, that hold on a second here, we can have a great impact regardless of the activity if we know that in the end we're going to affect American economic prosperity. And in that sense, whether it's a bombing or a kidnapping or an assassination, that becomes less important than the idea that the terrorist group will have an economic impact. And I'm just trying to think how 9-11 has changed the way terrorists operate.
2: But well, I think still, I think even with the newer with the newer data, I mean what we see in the newer data is this there's more deadly bomb. That's what we see. I think there's just no question about that. I think how terrorists operated, my own my own personal View is they get much more mileage with big deadly bombs like in the Spanish subway system than they get on uh, the Spanish train system than they get by taking a hostage holding. I think that's what's different. But I think that happened a little bit before not One of those very deadly. Can you talk a little about the geographic dispersion?
5: Is
2: there any kind of trends or breaks in where it is? That's actually a question. The question was, could I talk a little bit about the geographic dispersion of the incident? And that is exactly what Todd and I are going to work on this the summer. We have some money coming from Homeland Security, actually, to look at that question exactly. Because what we want to try to look at is the is the transmission and discouraging events across countries particularly from the developed to the developing do you think that's that's the kind of thing do
5: you think it all about the contagion of that
2: absolutely that's exactly do you have
6: any ideas
2: of
5: what mean by do you have any sort of initial guesses
2: working hypotheses? well I think it's I think that what we're going to see, not in the data, not in the data as we now have, but I think what we're going to see is more spectacular events happening in the United States. That's what I think. That's what I think grabs headlines, and we've always seen in the data an uh, increasing escalation in terms of severity and I mean some of those incidents that I reported before, like the uh, unexploded bomb outside the TWA office, that probably wouldn't even enter the data set now. And that's one of the reasons we don't do threats and hoaxes anymore, because we don't think that the data for threats and hoaxes is particularly good because our sensitivity levels are such that some of those kinds of incidents are important. So what I I think the next step is to have these logistically complicated incidents. Bombings work occurring in the United States. Mm-hmm. We'll see. One thing you can use
1: with this technology is trying to get questions in from the other side. And so I'm sure I heard them back there. Yeah? Go ahead. Tell them so. Go ahead. You'll just say, are you ready for their questions? I'm ready for your question. <laughs>
2: Minnesota.
3: Minnesota.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
2: Yes. You have to say yes. Yes. Can I ask a question? Please do.
6: Okay. Two questions about time series. First, um, since you want to avoid data mining, my question is, why would one ever posit a first-order integrated process for something like terrorism? Um, is there a rational actor explanation analog to financial markets that some set of information is being perfectly processed? And why, knowing what we do about the variance properties of first order uh, or first of I one processes, are you allowing for the possibility of total anarchy in some sense? Um, my second big question is, what is your stand on dynamic event count models? Um, you've got counts here. You haven't got continuous data. And there's all kinds of sophisticated models that do binomial thinning and things of this kind. Is that really necessary in
2: this case? Let me me take them one at a time. Maybe I wasn't clear. The series that we have are stationary series. So, and we do unit root tests, but We do unit root tests to get around some of the criticisms that I thought you were going to talk about regarding non-stationary series. Almost all of those series are stationary. The problem is series with a structural break may often appear to be non-stationary series. And so it's very difficult to do a test for structural breaks and unit roots. So if, you, if Ohio State Econ Department invites me back, I'll give you my working paper with Jun Su Lee <laughs> where we do unit root tests and structural breaks. However, it's, almost all these series are stationary, so they're not integrated of order one, so they don't wander off to plus or minus infinity. So that, that's not a problem. On the fact that the data are count data Uh, That is an important question. Some of the series are thick enough that it doesn't bother me. That assassination I'm sorry, the hostage takings that I showed you, uh, where it falls off to about four or five, as it turns out, uh, the standard deviation is about two, so that four or five is within two standard deviations of zero. So it would be possible to estimate uh, the model using a Poisson distribution or something like that. However, I don't think it's a problem in testing for structural breaks. I believe strongly that since we don't have a lot of zeros and since we're not generally in the neighborhood of zeros, that our coefficients are fine. Maybe some of our t-statistics I have, a little, I have a little bit of a problem because of the, uh, uh, the non-normality assumption being violated. But in terms of point estimates of the coefficients, I think for the data we have, it's not a problem. Yes? Um,
0: with regard to the breakpoint, and this is not a question about the data, it's a question more about the underlying cause, notice that most of the breakpoints that you did find were early to the mid-1990s. Um, you attribute that to be an actual cause for that breakpoint would be the collapse of the Soviet Union. What, in your opinion, would be the actual cause of those
3: breakpoints?
2: So the question was, why do we see so many breakpoints in the 1990s. 1990s? Yeah, in the 1990s. And, that, and that's why I went through that history of terrorism, to try to say that we saw this switch of terrorism beginning around 1979 we, see, we saw more religious terrorism and fewer uh, state-sponsored terrorists, fewer groups that were interested in Marxist ideology. And so we think that around the early 1990s is the time where we see more that religious-based terrorism is taking over. Now, the downside of this methodology, the downside of letting the data tell you the break date is I just told you that story that seems reasonable to me that I have no way of uh, showing that um, so uh,
4: often this seminar has political scientists in it and people interested in domestic American politics so in a way the time series analysis that you gave it shows two things In one way, it's kind of a victory for Bush's blaming our lax policies in the 1990s on the rise of terrorism, and uh, you can fit that into the story of the Afghan uh, Arabs becoming becoming more sophisticated. On the other hand, since there's no structural break after 9-11, it seems as though Bush's anti-terrorism policies are not working at all. So would you consider that a uh, provocative but perhaps a uh, uh,
2: simple summary of the time series analysis that you've done? Do you want me to read? <laughs> <laughs> so the question then is, is, given the timing of the breaks, is it both phrasing and damning Bush? Prazing Bush because in reality the breaks seem to occur pre-9-11 and damning Bush because we don't see anything after 9-11. So, do you want me to be Candelisa or no? If I were Candelisa, I would say, it's all their fault, and we don't have enough data to to do the hypothetical of what would have happened had we not been so aggressive against her. But, But, when I read the paper and make my own conclusions and look at the data, I say to myself, you know... Something important happened before 9/11, and we should have known. That's how I view it. That's how I view it. And other, I mean, if you want my personal opinion, there were many other things that had happened to make us think that terrorism was changing in an important way prior to 9/11. It's just not the. Issue
1: the profile of the terrorists has changed completely. So does that not, in fact, say that this is all good up until 2001, but we said the men who were responsible for that they came from families that were educated, they had money, they had their whole profile changed. So maybe this two, you know, 911 doesn't fit because of that, and does that not mean that terrorists in the whole have changed and it's going to make their motive a little harder to find or and will that not just shift the numbers all together because the profile has changed?
2: What happened is a break. So the question is, has the profile changed and is that what we're thinking about? Yeah your break
1: work up until that point in time but is it because the chairs were the same their profile didn't stay up until that point
2: in time. So we think I think that terrorists, Al Qaeda, was trying to do what it was doing before 9/11. But what the, what the statistics say is that there's a break. There's a break around this time. What time? Before 9/11. I could tell. I could try to tell you why we see a break before 9/11. And your answer was because the terrorists are different. I, I think that the terrorists are different for a particular reason. And I think that the terrorists saw that what, was, what worked was getting national attention by getting on the media, by doing very deadly types of things. So, the cult, for example. The attacks against our embassies, for example. I think they saw hostage-taking doesn't do what it used to do. Taking one hostage, taking the Achilles' law taking one person and killing that person, throwing the one individual into the ocean. I mean, it shocked, it shocked us. Horrifically. But I think we've seen it. I think that, that's done. And so I think that what's different is that they believe they have to undertake very deadly attacks. That's what's different. It was, it was the hostage situation in the body, in a sense, on
1: 911.
3: So they kind of combined yeah, the same I, I Yeah, but I think the real, I think the real attempt was not the hostage state. And I think the
2: real concern was there is it was using your plane The new technologies are really repackaging old technology. How about that? How about that? When I listen to the uh, media, the big fears are these high tech kinds of uh, weapons, and we just don't see high tech types of weapons in any great numbers, anthrax being the major exception. Why don't we? Because so far they haven't needed. To Well, people have tried and it hasn't worked very well. And that's not to say that they're not going to try again. I mean, coming from being in Iowa State for twenty five years, knowing how easily med cow disease spread, I can think of horrible things that they can do. However, the things that they so far have chosen to do seems to be events that have an immediate impact. And that are very deadly. So I just don't think they've had to do this. I don't know whether they whether they have the technological ability to do these high tech things or not, but so far they haven't had to do that. And that's all and I could just look at the data and that's all I have to base this on. We just haven't seen it. Other question was
5: I'm one of the questions.
2: So what's the micro basis for the shift between hostage takings and into more deadly bonds? Because that seems to be what we find: like right? Fewer hostage takings, more bonds, more deadly bonds. Hostage takings only get yourself up, right? And what do you get from hostage taking? They're very complicated to do. They're very risky to do, right? They're... They're very risky operations because you have to maintain a hostage. All the time the hostage is being maintained, you're putting yourself in jeopardy. Moreover, it's easy for someone to try to, if you're going to stop a car and with someone from the car, I mean, you could be spotted, you could be caught. It's much easier, it's much less risky to set off a bomb. And so I think that's what's going on. I think these groups don't want to put themselves in jeopardy. And so they're using bombing. Moreover, I personally believe in the sort of franchise theory of terrorism, meaning that each of these cells act, to a large extent, individually. Instead of viewing sort of Bin Laden as a CEO, and he's working with all all the groups, instead I think that the cells are acting much more individually. They don't want to take these risks that they do not have make problem. And so I think that bombing technology just works better than the technology. That's why I think that's So The last
5: question.
2: Disag- why don't we disaggregate by groups? It's really tough to do that. We don't... None of this data I showed you had... The suicide bombings in Israel, for example, because those are domestic. So, so we don't have that. So we could disaggregate and have events against just the United States and the UK. But I know, as I play around with it, that it doesn't make the it doesn't make the ships in the series look all that
3: different. I guess that is kind of
1: disaggregation question too, and. As even way back when you first talked about your definitions and, and pointed to the shift from left-wing terrorism to the uh, uh, religious-based uh, fundamental religious-based so I, I was uh, wondering whether that doesn't uh, challenge the fundamental definition of being a political act, uh, or at least you know what you have to mean by a political act in order to to, uh, to call them both as the same kind of phenomena. And so the question is, if, if you did the time series separating out just religious-based uh, terrorism, uh, even transnational religious-based terrorism, do you think that the story would change? I mean, obviously, you know, the frequencies of earlier times might change, but is it possible that religious
2: based terrorism never used hostage as much to begin with and it's really the change the proportion of who's doing the terrorism when it is their change of I, sh- I very much agree that what we s- what we picked up in the 90s is a switch so let's say we just used religious based terrorism I think we would see almost none up until directed against the United States up until that takeover of our embassy in Ireland. Coincides with that, though. We see almost none. And then we see a lot of what we see. But would it wouldn't change the overall the statistical picture if but, ni- uh, but it
1: wouldn't
3: change
2: 1999. Because by 1999, most of the terrorism we see that's changing is this religious thing. My problem. And the reason we don't do that is because I don't know who did it, and I'm not sure what's religious based and what's not. I just just don't know. And so there are other people who may have better data sets than I do. I mean, I was at the Terrorism Center at St. Andrews, and and people there, like, live with terrorists. I mean, they actually live with terrorist groups. They are their friends from... You know, when they grew up and so forth. And those people maybe are in a better position to know what group is responsible for what incident. But I don't know. And I don't know how to do that from the kind of data that I showed you. That some incidents I could say that's religious things. But a lot of incidents, I have not a clue. So that's,
4: that's one of the reasons because. Yeah.
1: One persistent question that comes up in political science when we talk about time series is whether or not it's valid to even do unit root testing
3: on bounded series. So the idea being if your series is bounded but when you're testing these units
2: you think you might have infinite variance so I'd like your reaction about that. Um, and also, Can I just um, do that? Sure. Can I respond one at yeah. yeah. a <laughs> As I'm getting older I just can't have this short term <laughs> So is it valid to do unit root tests on things that have been? I definitely. Okay. Now, first of all, we do the unit root test because we don't want to be hit with the fact that these things may be unit roots and you can't do inference So we're trying to say, and they're stationary, even though there's structural breaks. There's a couple that are on the fringe of not being stationary. But come on, there are structural breaks because no one really knows how to do unit root tests with structural breaks at unknown breaks. Just done. I right? particularly well, But With know unknown number of well. ones. Okay. Uh, nevertheless, I think it's perfectly valid. If it had turned out different, I would have differenced the series. And the reason I would have done it is because there's a literature that says that even if the series is not truly a unit root, if it's a near unit root, you're probably better off modeling it as a unit so I would be, I would I wouldn't different. Would
1: you yeah. ever go into
2: trying to see rather than the zero-one dichotomy fresh? Could. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot, actually I think there's a lot of long memory stuff here. Mm-hmm. I do. And I think that would be something, but, I mean, that's not what our interest is. Our interest is just trying to see are there, are there change forms? And so we're just trying to get past the unit root stuff in order to say look, these things act and by the way when I actually did the series I did not include 68 and 69 in the data if you go back and look at some of those pictures I mean we actually started in 1970 because the series started from essentially zero in 1968
3: and 1969
2: um but if you look but if you look at the not the proportion so much but look at but look at that proportion up until about 1994 or so I mean I'm the last one who's going to say let's use our eyes and only our eyes to discuss the properties of the data but I'll be the first one to say up through 1990 don't tell me that that's a unit just, it's just not. And so all we really want to say is that look, come on. These things are stationary around some point. That's what we want And so the reason for doing the unit group test is because someone's going to say, but don't you want to make sure these things are stationary? we did that. That's I guess
1: that was the first question. I'll round. save the rest for the later today. Okay.
4: I'm a little bit unclear on what actually is motivating the research here. And I remember in the in the beginning of the paper, you indicated that the conventional wisdom is that 9/11 changed with everything. And when people typically say that, what they usually mean is 9/11 was different in the fact that you had international terrorism against the United States, or that you had, you know, there's the psychological and economic impact in the U.S. And I don't and I don't think that you're testing that. So, are you just? I I don't want to accuse you of data mining, but I'm not sure what exactly you're trying to demonstrate with the paper.
2: The actual motivation for this paper came when we got a previous paper rejected, and the (laughs) the referee said you can't do time series because it's all different. That that is the actual motivator. <laughs> crazy. and said, what are you talking? You know, what? And Todd, in case you know the website, Todd had, this is this website, worst rejections in history or something like that. That rejection letter was put on this guy's <laughs> website as one of the stupidest rejections ever. So we started talking, so how are the series different as a result of 9-11? And what we thought is we'd see all kinds of change. That's what we really thought. That we'd see all kinds of substitutions that have taken place because of the war against terrorism, because of lots of different things. And we just didn't find it. We just found it's, it. It seems that if the terrorists are behaving differently, it's not after 9/11. It's before. And usually it's not right before, it's ten years before. So that what we're saying is that, at least to us, it seems that terrorist behaviour is pretty much going where it's been going. That's what we're trying to say. And maybe that's not an interesting question, but that's what we're trying to say that you know, it's not all that different. But there were a couple of key structural breaks that came before 9-11. And some of them were shortly before. And that, then you have to ask, why did you see these things happening about a year before 9-11? When we don't impose that structure on the data. The, the data set. Something <coughs> important happened about a year before 9-11. Okay. Um, can I ask you a
7: little bit more on of my- the theory that be made about the substitution people. Mm-hmm. Say that bombing is cheaper because when you do a, a, a kidnapping or a hostage taking, you have a chance of being caught, so you're probably going to lose the people you put in there, anything like that. The thing which is bothering me, and it's been bothering me for a while about the hostage data that you have and where the great point is, is first of all, if that's the reason why bombing is cheaper. How did that change after that? A lot there's no reason why the payouts would differ. And when I look at your data and see where the break point is for the hostage taking, the first thing that I think of is having, um the number of hostage taking situations or kidnappings occurring, um, you know, transnational, which would still be transnational incident, in Colombia been nearly have in about the same country. Wasn't the election of the new administration right around 2000, 2001? and there's been a halving of uh, kidnapping and hostage incidents, which is still be opposed transnational because they tend to kidnap aid
2: workers, American nationals. It could very well be that some of the decline in hostage takings is a result of the government as well. Right. Could be. Could be. But why would you expect then, that? The substitution I did I it. I would have expected that, but, we did, but it doesn't come at 9/11. And it doesn't come at 9/11. It comes before 9/11. Okay, that's what we're trying to say. But it really, comes before 9/11. When you when you say was 9/11 a singular event, the answer is generally no. If you use the by-for-own text and say pick out the break dates, you don't get 9/11 unless you're in the sort of the the tail of the 95% confidence, So we're trying to say, and I think that's what Eric was asking earlier, I mean, was this in the data before 9-11? We think, yes. Yes, it was. Um, So that's, I think, the message of the paper. That if it was different, it was different before 9-11. but it wasn't all that different. So why was there so why was there more bombings? Why were there more bombings with change? Right? Because you don't see people change their behavior unless their preferences change, and I don't know why they would, or incentives change. And I think incentives changed. I think that incentives change for more bombings because they saw, in part, that deadly bombings worked very well. Bombings against our uh, Bombings against our embassies, bombings against the coal, those kinds of things, I think, gave signals that terrorists could get their name out. Just at
0: this point, you don't see yet your measure of success for terrorists. So you have the story that they've learned that bombings get more positive something than hostage-taking, but I don't see where in your data there's a measure of what the terrorists get. I mean, another story could be that they have achieved nothing and the frustration level is growing, so they're just escalating. You know, hostages didn't get it done. They got no real feedback in terms of uh, satisfaction from their demands. So they stepped it up and they're still making the same demands and maybe even U.S. foreign policy war on terrorism is their view, war in Iraq. and So more uh, defeat. So they're going to escalate still further. We're sort of in a spiral model of escalation. How would we know with which story would take?
2: Well, I think two things. I think that it is the case that terrorists often get what they want. Not everything they want, but some of them. I think that it, it's hard to look at a sustained terrorist campaign and pick one where the terrorists got nothing out of it and that's the terrorist group itself self suspend. But I think groups like BTA, for example, got a lot of the language rights demands met by the Spanish government. And I think that groups in Colombia oftentimes get things that they want to get. So that they do get things and some of what they want is I mean that Obviously, groups that want their own uh, state, their own religious state, have not gotten that yet. But certainly they have gotten something. They've gotten media attention, they've gotten some people being more sympathetic to their plight than they have had in the past And I think, to put it in a measure output, I think their, their long-term goal, some of it, not all it. Some of them may want to have, as a long-term goal, go back to the you know, original borders of Palestine. I think that's not going to happen. But some of them want uh, to have a Palestinian state, for example. And I think that given that their story gets out, given that their situation gets out, many more people are more sympathetic to the cause than they would have been have they not been in terrorism?
0: You don't know No, I don't think I agree with that. I think that if you look at the religious based terrorism in the Middle East, the singular demand they have is for essentially Westerners, Israel, and the United States to get out. And I think that in the last 15 years, particularly in the mid 90s, the United States commitment to get the Middle East has gone up. And Dramatically, since the beginning of this new uh, century, true well, presence, physical
2: military presence, and so on and so but forth. So, your story is that they're working against themselves. Yes. That they don't know what to do. And I don't think. Okay. They're in a
0: spiral model, they haven't broke our back
2: yet. I mean, they haven't broke their
0: back
2: yet either. That's possible. There are lots of stories of, lots of irrational stories that you can impose on people that. I'm not going to be able to reject with the data. But from the very start, I'm always going to work with the rational of model. And so, never, we're not going to change each other's mind here. But I think that in the past, terrorists have often won concessions, not won the war, but won lots of battles and got what they want. I think that in many ways they act as rational agents would act, as opposed to irrational agents. And so I think there's a lot that's consistent with the rational actor But you're right; I can't reject your story.
3: Yes. I, mean, I think
1: this question.
2: So, the question was: have people putting together these kinds of data sets try to come up with more qualitative measures. Or something to match quantitatively
1: uh, along just with the data sets.
2: So, you might mean the intensity of, of
3: events. Right. Or um, maybe, um, as we previously asked, what did we
2: A, Chris Hoffman has a really wonderful book uh, Inside Terrorism. And he goes through analogies starting with the battle for Algiers, Where it's a wonderful narrative about what the terrorists want did they get what they want? And the answer is they did. I'm sorry. He actually starts off with what did the uh Israelis want as terrorists. Did, they get, did the Israeli terrorists get what they want? They did. Then he shows how in the battle for Algiers, the FLN copied what the Israeli terrorists did and they got what they want. And he goes through this whole chronology of the history of terrorism from uh, beginning with the creation of Israel to what we have today, doing exactly what you're in using a qualitative description of what the terrorists want and did they get it and how did they get it? Yeah. In general,
3: no. It's
2: a different kind of study. I mean it's a different kind of study. Yeah. To go back to the Bush administration. If you had learned
5: your uh, if you had worked on the data set in August two
2: thousand one, you have been able to Spot the brick. That's why we try to do that multi-step ahead forecast. Okay? That's what we try to That's what that's about. So suppose we were in August 2001. How would we report this? Suppose we were in uh, the next... So suppose we were in the third quarter. Well, I we did the data quarter. Suppose we were in the third quarter how would we have forecast, et cetera. Let's even back it up further, though, and what we tried to do. Suppose we were in 1999 and we wanted to do eight-step-ahead forecasting, what would have happened? Suppose we were in the third quarter of 99, fourth quarter, suppose we were in year 2000, and you would have missed, and what we're trying to show is that you would have missed important breaks in the early 90s but you wouldn't have missed important breaks with most of the series except hostage takings and the proportion of hostage takings and Debbie be with 2010. So that's what we tried to do. So could these things have been forecasted? And the answer is all of them could have except hostage takings and I hadn't thought about maybe why hostage takings that. But all of them could have, except Debbie Bond, you would have made a large forecast there because it was an important grade, around 9 uh, 11. Slightly difficult. You know, but that's what all the multi step forecast is trying to take. Can you
4: say a little we more word about how
0: the multi step or even single step forecast works from a more uh, I don't want to call it technical, but I'm not sure I understand the engine underneath it. I look at those series, and it looks a lot up and down. I mean, I can see from a big picture, sure, they're within a range of change, but there seems to be a lot of variation year to year, quarter to quarter. So what is your formula, not, not math, but in, in word, but you want to go one, two, six steps out? Do you look back, ten steps, and just take an average, or, or how does that work?
2: you know, the regular recursive forecast. So we we estimate the dynamic process. We estimate the dynamic process over the whole period. And those are the results that I showed you previously. Then we ask a slightly different question. Suppose I was living in 1999 or 98 or 97. So suppose I was living here and wanted to forecast one step ahead, what would I forecast? Eight steps ahead, what would I forecast? And I would have, well, there, these are different time scales, but I would have forecasted about the same. So then I updated. Suppose I was living here and wanted to forecast one step and eight steps ahead, right? Uh, what if I was living in 1992 and wanted to forecast one step and eight steps ahead? And I wouldn't miss too much, right? I wouldn't miss too much. I'd have forecast errors, but they wouldn't be that big. I'd have forecast errors, but they wouldn't be that major. (laughs) But when would I make a major mistake? I'd make a major mistake forecasting ahead when in fact there was a break. And that's what this shows. Here the forecast errors just go horrible. Forecasting far ahead. So that's to say, you uh, forecasting far ahead, you would make a major mistake if you don't take would what happened around the here into account.
6: Excuse me, from Minnesota, what are the forecast air bands for these forecasts? Don't you have to put air bands around these things? And if you put the air bands up for eight steps, you're not going to be able to tell a break from just simply being within the 95% confidence interval. Am I missing something? You had no air bands on those forecasts.
2: I did put air bands on them, you're correct. <laughs> but I don't know how to do it. I, don't, I mean, really what I want to say is how does the one step and eight step ahead diverge? The one step ahead is going to pick up the break in one step. So the one step ahead... If, a, if there's a break next period, I forecast one step ahead. Okay, I miss the break. But now, here I am, I know there's a break, I'm going to forecast one step ahead, I'm not going to miss that break. I got it. However, if I'm here and I forecast eight steps ahead, I'm missing the break, I'm missing the break, I'm missing the break, I'm missing the break. So I'm really looking at the divergence between the one and the eight step ahead forecast, and I'm not sure how to get that confidence interval, although probably I should think about how to do that. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't care so much that this is small, that this is where it is. I care about, just because I'm trying to show that there was an important break, I think, that occurred here, that there's an important discrepancy between these two at this time. That's what I'm trying to look at. I guess I could I could just bootstrap confidence intervals and do it that way, I guess. But I didn't, be right.
3: Could I
6: jump in with another question at Wisconsin? Sure. Uh, about, uh, it's a break question, uh, sort of a similar one, except on your uh, Biperone. I noticed that your, your error bands around the dates aren't necessarily symmetric. That's
2: correct. They're not symmetric. And I wondered why that was the case. Okay. In the Biperone test, is, you don't need to have symmetric error band because it's not equally likely. It's not equally likely that the break occurred. So let's say this is the identified break point right here. Okay. Tell me what 95, what, how likely is it that the break occurred here versus over here? It's very unlikely that the break actually occurs back here, let's say three quarters before, as opposed to three quarters after. Right? So the, the, the confidence intervals are asymmetric. Okay? So it is back an asymmetric confidence interval that, you, that you're getting. So, so that's what you want. In fact, that's what I think you should get. And it's just—it's just not like doing uh, a t-test and you have the symmetric and you have the symmetric confidence interval because there's very little chance that the break occurs here. Maybe it occurs here, but maybe it occurs here. But there's but it's not. But it's less likely that it occurs here than it occurs over here. So you, you don't see the symmetry, and in the bivariate procedure, all the confidence intervals. <coughs> yes. I'm going to ask that second one because I think students might be
1: interested in it too. Um, obviously, the model have works.
2: I think with this particular paper, if I, if I want... Or the next one. Right? Yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, no paper's ever done. No paper's ever perfect. And so, if I wanted to make this better, what I would have done is to do co That's what I... Because I have all these series, and I really look at each one individually. Is there a break in series one? Is there a break in series two? But can't you do better by estimating all series and just doing is there a break at 9-11 across all? So doing a more system VAR type of framework would, in my mind, be a better way to do it. Uh, Can you do breaks in
3: VAR still?
2: Yeah, you could, but I don't know how to do the bi procedure in a VAR. So I don't, I don't know how to do... And nobody knows how to do that. So we didn't. But if I wanted to do just a simple... What's the previous question? The previous uh, table that I showed you where I had... Say 9-11 is a break date, either pulse or level, and maybe some other explanatory variables. I could do that as a system. But the co-breaking... The co-breaking. I'm not sure how to do that with biopro, but I'm not. But there are there are lots of papers on co-breaking. But, but that's what I would. That's what the best. Were that's how I would try to tweak this that. Well, this is a world record. How long? Ago. How are you doing? Do you, do you I'm great. <laughs> I still have like 20 more slides. I <laughs> knew <laughs> I can do all of them. <laughs>
4: Um, I, as, as far as I understand there's going to be something informal with uh, Professor uh, Stephen Fier uh, right at this or at 2.30 okay so we'll take uh, we'll a for a break I'd like to thank the tech people a lot yeah. for uh, so good, thanks a lot for getting Madison and, and, <laughs> and then, uh, especially um, uh, well I, I've known Walt for a long time, this, uh, and I'm saying this not because of my friend, but this has been one of the most provocative, longest running, most interesting presentations I've seen
2: this morning for a couple of years. Okay, so you've right. already to send me this tape. Right? Right. thank you very much. Thank you very
3: much.
6: might be the best uh, person to start with at Minnesota. So if for no other reason, then you know, you've got logistical stuff still going on there at OSU. Does that sound reasonable? That sounds fine. Yep, thank you. I don't wait until next week, you guys. We've only got
1: nine minutes
6: left, but I think that just
3: did not fair. Okay. Uh, That'd be fine, to- too.
1: Yeah, that's fine. Um, one thing, for anybody who's going to Chicago, we are getting together for pizza a week from today at, i sure, 8 o'clock in the Does that sound Right, guys? 8 o'clock, I think we that right after the president's reception. Um, okay, and thank you very much for cooking up. Um, yep. Let's see. Uh, and I know there was a question about the DAR assignment. If the due date was still where it was. We'll give you guys within a, for about a week if you email me and let me know that so you're not lost in space and assignment so last need an extra week, I think that would be okay with us.
5: Oh, yeah,
1: that's fine. Sure, sounds good. Yeah, and uh, someone else asked if there were RAS codes um, for the VAR, and I'm sure we've already got some of that up on the website. You do look do the assignments part. I know Mark Smith um, has some up there, and no doubt, um, if you have questions, I'll with that part. I was really excited to know that the Yeah, there's some up... Uh,
3: I'll be quiet. <laughs> i was going to say, there's some up, and
6: I'm going to put some more up this weekend, uh, including some tests for uh, land type issues, which you don't have to do, but if you want to, you have to have yourself out. I just want to thank Jan for arranging this. This was really cool. This was really, uh, a really memorable event. Thank you, Jan. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. I thought it was pretty neat. Yes, thanks a lot. I thought to
3: think that
1: were be neat because it's just a class in here now, was that, we learned about multiple structural breaks. it fit in well with what we've already covered in class. Um, you know, We knew how to do interventions um, and you know, letting the data speak, which we've been talking about a lot in class. We heard a little bit of the criticism of what might get from people who aren't used to that. Um, so I thought that was really useful. But I also think it should have everybody in the, house, you know, in the class feeling pretty good um, about what they're learning in this class. Because here's a top notch econometrician using really popular data in the sense of, you know, Funding for it and stuff, and um, you know how to do these methods. This is not, you know, this is not beyond what you guys are going to be able to do again as a class, alone be able to review something like this. Um, and you saw Ellie's book being be review and she can just wrote down John's pregnancy. <laughs> no,
3: no, no,
6: no. no. <laughs> <laughs> it's <on> every, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure none of John's abuse are
3: on that website. <laughs> at that stage. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm going to
1: check in with Dylan because we didn't get to hear much from them today. Dave, Bill, are you guys doing okay there?
6: Yeah, we're fine.
5: Yeah, Uh am not talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Good.
3: I,
1: we should, I think we'll all go check out that website that was mentioned this weekend,
3: though. I'm going to, <laughs> to <laughs> see how
1: my reviews is up to it. Okay, I hope to see everybody in Chicago then. Thanks.